this is the fire these times and i'm your host joey ayub In this third season, we will be exploring international solidarity, prefigurative politics, solar punk, and how to tackle some of the most pressing challenges of our times. Each episode will be on one or more of these topics. But before getting into today's topic, I wanted to quickly tell you that you can support this podcast for as little as two or five dollars a month on Patreon.com/FireThesetimes. That is Patreon.com/FireThesetimes. If you cannot donate, you can still support by sharing it with your friends and families and leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps it get more exposure and introduce it to more folks. That's it from me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, my name is Shane Burley. Um, I'm over here in Portland, Oregon in the U.S. Um, uh, I'm a journalist, author, um, most recently, editor of the book uh, No Passeron, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis, which is an anthology of writing on anti-fascism. And previously wrote uh, Fascism Today and Why We Fight, both for AK Press. And I write for a bunch of different places. Yeah, NBC News, um, Al Jazeera, Haaretz, uh, Jacobin, a lot of spots. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for, for joining us. So as you mentioned, you edited this uh, book, No Passeron, Anti-Fascist Dispatch from a World in Crisis. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, pretty astonishing book. Actually, pretty impressive work. With a forward by uh, Todd Levin and afterward by David Renton, both of whom are pretty cool. And a number of different chapters on this topic of uh, well, fascism and more importantly, anti-fascism, including uh, I will mention that I'm going to do an episode with Leila Shami and Sean McFessel, who wrote or well, co-wrote one of the chapters uh, in the book on the relationship between the far right and Bashar al-Assad. Uh, that episode would also have will also have Mariam um, Elba, uh, who wrote uh, on this topic for for I think the Intercept some years ago. Um, actually, folks, by the time they listen to this, this that episode might have already come out. I'm not entirely sure how I'm gonna plan this, but um, if folks are on Patreon, they will definitely have early access to it anyway. And there's also a chapter with uh, by or co-wrote by Amy Bevancy on a super complicated topic, but that's that's fascinating on like why we need a network to defeat a network essentially, like a network. Why we need an anti-fascist network to defeat a fascist network essentially, and a bunch of other stuff. Like it's one of those books that you can pick it up at any point. Uh, the chapters are written independently, although kind of like it feeds it. The spirits are in conversation with one another to some extent. And that's how I've been doing it. Like, I just pick a chapter that I haven't read yet, not really chronologically, and it's been pretty informative so far. And you've written, obviously, the introduction, as well, I think, a couple of interviews in there you've conducted. So anyway, um, the book is on and so an anti-fascist dispatches. So I guess the first question I would ask you, if that's okay, how would you define anti-fascism? Because, that you know, the word fascism on the internet is used pretty... Uh, you know, recklessly, pretty much everyone has been called a fascist at this point. What is fascism? Uh, what is anti-fascism? Obviously, like some definitions, some histories. So, you know, you won't do the entire uh, history of it because that will take about, you know, a year or so. But, you know, give us a gist for those who maybe know kind of, oh, this is a bad thing. Like fascism is a bad thing, but, you know, w- what is it? Why is it so bad? And why does it keep on happening? <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. I, I define fascism in my first book as a revolutionary movement um, towards human inequality and to essentialized identity. So the idea that identity chooses you, you don't choose it. So mm-hmm. racial identity being the most common um, in there and that that's purely stratified, right? That's inherently unequal. In a liberal kind of post-enlightenment world, there is a broad consensus on human equality, though not how to get there or how proficient it should be. Um, And this is a rejection of that. So I sort of position it as part of a perennial right-wing impulse towards stratification and human inequality Mm -hmm. and to kind of radicalizing those tribal identities, Um, obviously put into a revolutionary situation, building itself on top of populism. So mass participation, it's not just coming from the top. And it's also distinctly modern. So I think earlier movements that have a similar character, I think they actually function differently. So this is one that sort of emerges before the Second World War, obviously leads to the interwar period and the war itself we see in 
you know, places like Italy and Austria and Germany, but also I think I would extend it to countries like Spain and other ones mm -hmm. that sort of have called it para-fascist or proto-fascist. And then since then, largely as a minority movement in the Western countries, so, you know, like the Front National in France or AFD in Germany, basically movements that don't have the complete reins of state power, but they pose a couple of threats. One, they pose the threat of actual street violence, you know, extrajudicial violence, but also the potential power, uh, ability to state pay, take state power. And then also movements outside of the West that have had varying degrees of success. And I think you know, because the term fascism is really created to look at movements that emerge out of white settler colonialism and white identity, it's hard to imprint them on other places, but you can do it. You know, Hindu nationalism has a lot of those characters. There's movements mm -hmm. in Brazil. There's been uh, movements really on every continent that have had some of those similar kind of flavors, either inspired directly by that kind of white racial ideology or transmuting that ideology onto non-white folks. So basically, um, you know, moving that way of thinking outside of just the white space. Um, okay. So anti-fascism <laughs> is the movement against it, right? This And what I make really clear, the opening essay is the introduction. It defines anti-fascism and it defines it as specifically as a non-state movement. It's mm -hmm. not states fighting fascism. So, for example, the quote-unquote official policy of a lot of allied countries in the Second World War and certainly before was anti-fascist. Well, that's not what we're talking about. That's a completely different phenomenon. What we're talking about is extrajudicial community defense organizations that don't just rely on um, uh, the police or law enforcement, but take kind of matters, the matter of protecting their communities to heart and use community organizing strategies ranging all the way from disruption, all the way to mass protests, whatever it may be. But that kind of community focused approach is what we talk about when we talk about anti-fascism. So every chapter in the book is talking about a different piece or idea about that distinction about those different movements that are coming from the ground up to confront the far right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I want, I want us to make a distinction between maybe like the far right and, and fascism, although obviously the line between those two is often blurred, often intentionally. But before we do that, um, I mentioned the book, but talk to us more about the book. We'll get back to it towards the end when we do the book recommendations anyway. But uh, basically, like, pitch the book because I, obviously I'm having you on because I want folks to buy it. So <laughs> tell, yeah. tell, tell us about it a bit more. Yeah, the book came out of conversations, I, I think, actually, with Kim Kelly and Spencer Sunshine years ago now um, about that there really wasn't something just like this that sort of opened up what we think of as anti-fascism. The histories and conversations were incredibly narrow when we talked about it. Obviously, it was mm -hmm. only Western focused, very narrow history and also very narrow types of organizing, even though anti-fascism is actually quite large and is actually involved um in obviously since the emergence of fascist movements, but also across different identities, geographies, things like that. So we wanted to open that up. And so the idea was to talk to folks that had opinions and expertise on this area and say, write whatever you want. And like, that was the idea. What would you write if you could do that? So like, you know, Sean and Leela that you mentioned, I was like, what would you write? They're like, oh, we'd write about Assad and the relationship mm -hmm. to the belt, right? Other folks, Hillary Moore wanted to write about anti-fascist fight clubs. Uh, Janelle Hope wanted to write about the, the black anti-fascist tradition. There's just a lot of ideas that came out of that. And so we ended up with one of the largest books ever written on <laughs> this subject is a, a giant brick of a book. Uh, yes, as well it, it's like about. 500 pages, a bit more. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and in a large format on top of yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. a really kind of massive uh, work. And so it's intended to be something that you kind of browse to define what you're interested in. And there's a lot, a lot in there. Yeah, yeah no, um, one of them, like you just mentioned as well, like the the link between Hindutva, like Hindu supremacy and, and white supremacy, I'll, at least a couple of them, a couple of episodes planned on that topic. Uh, Syria definitely talked about that a lot, unfortunately, but we'll get we'll dedicate one episode at the very least. So I get it out of, out of my chest as well, like this link between the far right and Bashar Assad and why it's so problematic to be very uh, mild about it that there are lefties that still uh, whitewash the regime. But that's for another another episode. Um, as I mentioned, like the line between the far right and fascist is often pretty blurry. When we think of France, even in the recent election, the Front National, which you know redubbed re itself as the Rassemblement National, but whatever, um, they even place themselves as not as far right, for example, as Zemmour, who placed himself more to the right than them. So, like, if they are fascist and he is more than, than more right wing than fascist, like how how fascist can one get? And obviously, like the point, you know, it's it's not really like, oh, who is a fascist and who isn't, although that's very important. 
Uh, let me rephrase that. It is very important to know who is a fascist and who isn't. Although that that's that we should also pay attention to the fact that there are far right figures and movements and groups that may not be technically fascist, but are like are close enough that they desire, uh, like they require. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, close attention, and especially because, well, they could end up actually being fascist, which has happened a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. So how how would you kind of make that distinction for folks who, again, maybe are not that involved in, in like the anti-fascist spaces? It's a really complicated distinction. Um, David Renton, who you mentioned in Ruth Afterward, uh, mm-hmm. published a, a book recently called No Free Speech for Fascists. And, and basically he talks about this continuum by which anti-fascist tactics are sort of deemed acceptable by the community based on the extremity of the target, you know? Mm -hmm. So no platforming might make sense for Richard Spencer and everyone might be in agreement, but if it was, you know, Tom Cotton, Republican, you know, politician, maybe people wouldn't be in agreement that, um, that no platforming would be necessary and people would have to make the case or debate whether it's a good tactic, that kind of thing. I think this happens a lot, particularly because open fascism is quite small. Those are very, Mm -hmm. very narrow groups typically. I tend to use the term far right for anything that doesn't have certain levels of explicitness. So one explicit racialism. So for example, race and IQ talking points mm-hmm. um, that I think is a dividing line. A lot of what we see in the far right are civic nationalist talking points or coded racialism. That's very, very close in some cases, sometimes even stepping into that, but there is sort of a line of extremity that we draw there. And so we tend to rope it in as far right because the fascist movements are part of that larger far right, and because there's overlap between them, and there's ideological fluidity, fluidity between them. Um, another one is the Jews. Um, the mm-hmm. far right, particularly in the U.S., Western Europe, tends to not. They tend to, for one, uh, prop up about Israel. They tend to not kind of engage in what they call the Jewish question. Open fascism tends to to engage with Jewish issues in that way, um, and so there's just a few of those dividing lines of levels of extreme. Um, that I think are really important. You're not going to find open discussions of a white ethno state and most of the right. You're going to find ways of that sort of uh, made more fluid, American nationalism, coded racial nationalism, limited racial nationalism, that kind of thing. So I think we create that dividing line there. The anti-fascist response tends to rope in all of the far right. And there's a kind of a tactical reason to do that. It's because they all have a sort of collaborative framework Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and they are effectively working on the same movement there are boundaries though right like i said you know a republican politician or i should say a a republican politician of a few years ago at least wasn't now it's changing right yeah you know so like you know newt gingrich is a it's a real asshole but i'm not like i wouldn't say that he's like part of the far right necessarily Mm -hmm. So I think like those are the distinctions that are made. And I think that is what anti-fascists then see as what the prerogative is. Is the presence of this person or this movement so noxious that it could actually lead to violence against marginalized communities or against us as the left or whatever? I think that's the negotiation that's made. And it's actually really tough to make that negotiation because, uh, you know, you cannot trust the far right to explain who they are. The good example of this is the Proud Boys. If you interview Proud Boys, I've talked to a lot of Proud Boys. When they explain their politics, it comes across as pretty lukewarm conservatism, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't actually use a lot of like really extreme time. They have a few, but typically like when actually cornered, they won't do that. But instead, what they'll do is actually engage in violence against marginalized communities, engage in violence against the left versus someone like Richard Spencer, who's an open fascist and explains it very carefully. Um, and it's very clear what he believes, but he doesn't engage in the violence that the Proud Boys do. So you have two different types of examples here. One whose extremity is determined by their behavior and the other one whose extremity is determined by the way they profess their own ideology. Mm-hmm. So I think it ends up being fluid. And that's why those things are complicated because things like disruption and no platforming that's not an easy choice in life. You know, I think most of the left kind of agree that they actually want like open discourse and a, they want freedom to share opinions, things like that. So it's a tough choice when it's made to try and like disrupt someone's speaker or something like that. So I think those negotiations are always being made. Yeah. Uh, so because we brought it up, I want us to get maybe a bit more into why, why there are these tactics. No, because I think there is this image, even among folks who, would call themselves like opposed to fascism. Like they wouldn't necessarily take the mantle of like Antifa, for example, or they wouldn't maybe say that word openly mm-hmm. um, because I don't know of certain associations. Maybe they want to position position themselves like, yeah, I'm I sympathize, but I wouldn't go that far, or you, or, you know, what, whatever it may be. Uh, so I want us. To, yeah, I have another point. Actually, let me make that other point too. The reason why I think. Um, 
at least as far as I'm concerned, and you know, something I don't know, I've, I've observed as someone who I live in Switzerland, but like because Switzerland is surrounded by three, you know, bigger countries: Italy, France, and Germany. The politics of those countries tend to just be known at the very least, if not like deeply, but at the very least, like at a surface level. And obviously the recent um, victory, uh, although not a super strong one, of the Fratelli d'Italia in Italy with Meloni um, has at least has kind of put this question or not make me look at how do we how does one or make me re-question like how, how do I even talk about fascism? To Italians, because again, there's this very wrong assumption. Uh, I did have that once upon a time when I was a bit more naive, that given Italy's history, you know, that there would be certain taboos uh, and fascism would be one of them. But the, Ita- the Italian system works in a certain way that as long as you don't call yourself fascist, you just don't use that word. I'm simplifying. I'm, it is a bit more complicated. But roughly speaking, as long as you don't use that word, you can kind of be one with as long as you don't use that word as long as you're not super explicit about it. Uh, and obviously, who gets to define what is super explicit fascism? That That's an entirely different question. Whereas, so like I would know, I know, for example, like anti-fascists in Italy, uh, obviously, they would count the Fratelli d'Italia in, in that camp. When it comes with the Northern League, uh, Liga Nord, uh, it's like it depends on which uh, area they live in. I've, I've just been learning these things because some of them have sort of joined that party. I'm talking about like individuals have joined that party because it was sort of the convenient thing to do. Others have joined it out of like an ideological commitment, whereas with Fratelli d'Italia, there seems to be much more ideological commitments there. And the nuance between those two is is pretty difficult, especially when we're talking about like at, at the, the damage that they can do like through electoral, uh, like through elections or, or, or whatnot. So anyway, and, you know, other other examples, France, we've mentioned in Switzerland, there's the UDC, which is uh, far right. Uh, but again, because Switzerland is the way it is, in some areas, you're UDC because like your father was UDC or whatever. And it doesn't it doesn't get more complicated than that, although the policies can still be pretty toxic. And to- so the, the question of like, what does one do? on uh, from from an anti-fascist principle ends up becoming kind of complicated not that i not that there isn't something to do i'm just saying that it just is complicated sometimes and the reason why i wanted us to get more into the the tactics is that i think that there is this image often uh largely due to i think this honest media portrayal that um anti-fascism is necessarily quote-unquote violent and usually, and uh, you know, we definitely we get this in in this book, is that well, actually, the most efficient, especially long term anti fascist tactics, is like community building, community resilience, you know, that sort of thing. But also, there are tactics, of course. There is like, uh, you know, drowning out uh, fascist protesters by having just a much bigger anti fascist uh, counter protest. You know, no platforming at times. Talk to us a bit more about those specific tactics, like you know, specifically from your experience. But feel free to bring up others mentioned in the book as well. So, yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, there's a couple of ways that I think people approach this. I mean, one of the underlying sort of tactical principles is that when you shut down their ability, a far right group or a person's ability to function, they are not able to recruit. And that's verifiably true. Right. So there's a lot of concerns that, for example, like disrupting a far right event might make them look like the victims or might get them favorable media coverage or proves that the left is truly intolerant and that they're the tolerant ones. Um, you know, just to be blunt, it doesn't really matter when they don't have a chance to speak what they have to say about it. Mm-hmm. I, it, I think sort of reading in too much complexity where it's not actually necessary when they are disallowed from functioning, they can't recruit. And I think all those other elements of it are sort of secondary to the, what they actually want, which is the ability to actually connect with other people and bring them into movements. So I think when you're thinking about tactics, it's thinking about what can sort of disrupt that. So like you're saying, you know, things like, and we talk about this in the book, and I, I have another uh, book that will come out in a couple of years talks about this, but you know, the use of a mass protest march to overwhelm space shuts down their ability to function. It's actually relatively peaceful. Like it's, mm-hmm. I, I should say relatively nonviolent. That's a better framing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of these things are, you know, um, even sort of the confrontational stuff, I wouldn't really portray as violent in most situations. You know, I've been at a lot of these rallies and the far right attacks the left openly. The left defends themselves, sometimes pushes them out of space or overwhelms that space. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, I think it's certainly not in the way that it's being portrayed in a lot of uh, media. 
Uh, I think the other thing about this is that like broad protest movements often get confused with anti-fascism by the media. They don't have a great understanding of this. This is what happened with Black Lives Matter and anti-fascism in like 2020. Um, And when we're talking about mass protest movements, um, it's not one and the same as anti-fascism can be, but not necessarily. Um, But we're also just talking about the sort of disruption and chaos that can happen in a protest for things like riots and you know blocking roads and things like that which again are pretty low level in the scale of human violence um and actually would be considered kind of non-violent when you compare it to what most people are concerned about which is like armed struggle attacks terrorism things like that those things are very far from it in fact are actually sort of tactical um alternatives to those sorts of things right like having a mass protest and that its ability to change power or force a change in power even through disruption or property destruction or something like that that is certainly a nonviolent alternative to a lot of the histories of you know revolutions that people have, might think of um and so i think people there's sort of this unfair conflation about what these tactics actually mean but again this we get into this in the book is that you know, a lot of the portrayals of anti-fascism have been spent around a certain type of military anti-fascist tactics. Yeah. And then that's portrayed as the entirety. But in reality, tactics are really just derivative of what they're trying to accomplish. And so a lot of what people have to do is, for example, engage in mutual aid work to support activists. That's important um, to engage in prison support, prison abolition work. That's important for it. When you look right down it, you actually find that all social movements have an interactive tissue and that's really true here because anti-fascism is important for all social movements to be successful right they defend the people in social movements they also push back on far-right people who want to sort of manipulate the conditions that help build social movements for their own purposes so there's always an interplay there and so it's not just that anti-fascists have this simple set of tactics is that they have to interact with all these different movements which have their own tactics their own constituencies and so on um, again though what we want to see is what do we what's meant to be accomplished and i think for example uh campaigns used to target specific far-right individuals for example you know revealing their information and then having a pressure campaign to have them fired or to have them kicked out of their place that kind of thing that is proven incredibly effective totally nonviolent, and it follows the principles of normal community organizing or even labor organizing those are familiar tactics so I think when we stop thinking about just this narrow picture of what antifascism is, all these options start to form and you can really think outside the box about it. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. I-, I definitely agree with that. Um, I would also kind of expand it to, to look like the, the, the whole, there, there is, a, we get, let me put it this way. I think we kind of fall into a trap often when we have to debate whether something, so I kind of asked it without entirely believing it, but I figured it was good to get it out of the way. But we do get stuck in debates as like, oh, this is too violent or whatnot. And the usual, not not always, and I don't want to dismiss that concern outright. I, I, I do want to keep that conversation open with folks who have concerns or whatever. But usually it's labeled as violent because the thing that we and, you know, whatever, but we are fighting against is often seen as the norm. And it's seen as like this is normal you know again and in a context like the us was white supremacy is quote unquote normal uh increasingly challenged obviously but at least normalized let's put it that way and definitely uh structural like embedded in the institutions and whatnot um the 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 stuff like i don't know police violence or whatnot end up becoming statistics now again this is changing and that's that's for the better but then if you have someone fighting back against the cop, for example, well, you know, that 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 gets debated. You know, the, we see this on the Internet all the time. Now, again, less so, but it still exists and definitely more so in certain circles, unfortunately. But we would see like, you know, oh, well, uh, was he threatening or, uh, you know, whatever. And it's all, almost always racialized. It's almost, you know, whatever. Yeah. But sure. the point the point is that it's seen as like, well, what did that person who got beaten or who got killed or whatever do? Because then what that uh, quote unquote justifies or can justify what the cop did. And I'm using kind of like this example because folk can, I think at this point, are pretty familiar with this in the context of like the U.S. Police violence is even outside of the U.S., unfortunately pretty notorious in the u.s still have certain images in mind especially since the the murder of george floyd and and others but how do you for example like you know i'm i don't need convincing really when i read this book i'm reading this book sort of to inform myself more uh also kind of to get to know different contexts uh, different names and and whatnot 
But for the most part, like I, I just I agree already. I know that I'm very likely just going to agree with most things, if not everything. Uh, and if there are disagreements, it's probably like pretty minor. Um, but let's say, let's say the, a person listening to this, I don't know what the demographic of this podcast is. I'm assuming most folks left, center left, maybe liberals in some cases. I have no idea if conservatives listen to this. If you do, uh, uh, welcome, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I hope you get something out of it. But I think most folks um, would define themselves, broadly speaking, on the left, maybe liberal, progressives, or you know, others would be leftists, anarchists, whatever. Um, do you sort of cater your uh, messaging or how are you able to kind of bridge those gaps often with folks who aren't familiar with those spaces, maybe have some idea that's mistaken, but who, you know, ultimately sort of don't really disagree with you when you think major, like they have no sympathies to the far right, let alone fascists. They just maybe believe that this isn't the best way to tackle it. Maybe they still believe that law enforcement is the way to go or, you know, whatever it may be. How do you sort of talk to those folks? Yeah, I mean, this book really has sort of movement hands all over it. It really has a lot of organizing, a lot of organizers and stuff. So it Mm -hmm. does, I think... It doesn't just, I mean, like there's definitely people uninitiated can easily go into the book. That's not a problem at all. But I think it does have that baseline assumption that a certain kind of activism is at least acceptable and it makes the case tactically for it, right? Like it'll explain like why those tactics are used, why this is preferable to that based on its efficacy. Now, like if someone's unsure whether or not there needs to be an efficacious movement, that's a different conversation, I think. You know, if I think what's really important is to make the case about what the far right does. And, you know, make that really visible to people. I think most people understand that things have to be done when people's lives are at risk. You know, my father, you know, was not winning Progressive of the Year Award, but you wouldn't have to sell him on why Nazis are bad and while doing something about them was uh, an acceptable thing. Like that wouldn't really, I wouldn't really have to to pitch that too hard. You know, I think um, when I was doing my first event for this book, um, I was at Palace Books here in Portland, um, Abner. Um, who wrote a chapter in there on anti-fascist media was there with me and they made a comment when someone asked that question and they said, look, if your parents um, saw what's been happening the last few years and they don't understand the need, then something else is going on. Um, The point being that like a lot of times when people are saying, oh, I'm not convinced, right? Why do I have to do this and that? Actually, there's some other biases at play. Um, and some other ideologies that are kind of, um, and I think those are worth unpacking. I, I, I sometimes am suspicious of this person, the person trying to convince people of stuff in that way. I think yeah, a part of what actually changes people's minds is, you know, proof that certain things work is personal experiences, obviously compassion if this is interpersonal and stuff. But I think um, there's a certain kind of propaganda of the work itself that I think makes that case a lot in the same way that bad behavior with anti-fascist <laughs> organizers or people who claim to be anti-fascist do it. That doesn't help much either. You know, yeah. like that can, yeah. kind of can be uh, regressive for opinion, but I don't think we should, rever- we should revert tactics simply to that public opinion. So I think it's, it's worthwhile to explain the efficacy, explain the actual threat and why particular tactics are sort of, um, commiserate with the threat that's coming in, but also the goal is to shut down the far right. And so I think one thing that gets discussed in the book, and, and while like I tend to prefer mass movement strategies in general, there are some anti-fascists that argue that's not always necessary. Actually, sometimes what's necessary is just disrupting this meeting and moving on. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a usefulness in that because what you want to do is limit the amount of imprints the far right has on the surrounding community. And there's a certain by any means necessary aspect to that. So even when that's not actually having that kind of public discourse that's still important i think obviously it's preferable to always have a public discourse always to explain politics and move people along and build those mass movements but anti-fascism doesn't um reduce itself simply to that because it has work to do absolutely and if i can give a sort of an example from my own experience in lebanon and obviously there will always be differences but when the uprising happened in 2019 in october i was there and obviously, I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but I don't think I've talked about this specific angle of it, or maybe not as much. But anyway, um, we the main opponent that we sort of had on the streets, other than like state forces, were Hezbollah and and their and their allies, Amal and, and some of the others. Now, the other sectarian parties have sort of their own version of the people that we call Shabiha, which is just like poor government thugs or men or folks or whatever 
who just you know do violence uh, uh, upon others, but whatever. Um, Hezbollah is a very specific example to Lebanon, I think. It's both part of the state. It's also its own thing linked to Iran, obviously. It's not, I wouldn't call it fascist, but it's definitely ultra-reactionary, ultra-conservative, and it has enough similarity, especially when it comes to like worshipping the dear leader and that sort of thing, enough, and hierarchies, which is a huge thing within Hezbollah, enough similarities with quote-unquote traditional fascism that at the very least it should be concerning. And there were lots of calls in kind of the early days, I would say, first week, first two weeks, which honestly felt like a year, but it was really just a week or two in the beginning, when there was more of a negotiation, I might call it, between protesters uh, who are not Hezbollah and Amal, because you had folks from all sort of backgrounds that joined the street protests, including folks who are sympathetic with those parties, and not just, but like the other parties as well. And so there was a sort of an assumption or kind of a, let's call it implicit understanding that, well, maybe we don't like them, but we probably need them. Like we need enough uh, bodies on the streets in order to uh, face the the cops or face the security forces or or whatever. And at some point uh, when, especially after the, when Nasrallah himself, the leader of Hezbollah, condemned the protests and, you know, called us all, you know, basically went all for conspiracy and whatnot, a, a supporters from Hezbollah, at least a good chunk of them, stopped attending. And in fact, the the men who came after were uh, more explicitly, like ideologically committed, often materially supported by uh, Hezbollah. And those those are the guys that we call Shabiha. So those are they they're there to kind of you know beat us up and intimidate and 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 what and often more than that. And I know a lot of folks who were supportive of the protests. Uh, including like relatives and you know whatnot, but who were kind of scared as to what would happen if we fight back against Hezbollah and the others. Right. And th- these are the same folks who would say like uh, you know they may identify as liberals or you know what maybe even conservative. Um, they say like you know you shouldn't fight the cops, for example, like that's not proper. Uh, but when it comes to Hezbollah, because Hezbollah isn't the cops, obviously they're not the state, or you know they're part of the state, but they're not right. supposed to be the state. There are others who would be like, well, maybe this is necessary. I'm, I'm talking about folks who are not already committed anti-fascists or whatever, right. like most folks, basically, liberals, whatever, others. But you, you kind of feel that, well, the thing is that if you spend too much time just trying to debate it, debate the weeds with like not just Hezbollah supporters, but non-Hezbollah supporters who don't know what to do with Hezbollah, um, well, you just won't have time to actually tackle Hezbollah on the streets as they are beating people up. That's kind mm-hmm. of, that's the main thing. And so what ended up happening is just direct confrontation between protesters and and what we called at the time pro-government forces, which were because Hezbollah is part of the government, uh, you know, effectively Hezbollah. And that tactic w- didn't need any justification. You know, people still went through the debates online, say well, this was needed or whatnot. But ultimately, the only the real the re- thing that happened is that folks were there on the streets, they were attacked and they started defending themselves. Unfortunately, that didn't last long because they had the superior power and COVID hit in January. We were very unlucky with the timing, but that's how it is. So that's like an example of like, even when it's not outright fascism, because I don't think Hezbollah fits under that category, as I said, close enough, but not really that. Um, Sometimes you just need to do what you got to do. But I would argue uh, kind of also to build up on what you said that probably the most effective thing in the long term is to build enough resilient communities to render those communities just not as efficient. Because at the end of the day, if they have the if they have guns or if they have stick, usually they don't use guns against protesters, but they will use rocks, they will use, you know, batons or what have you. Maybe we need some of that, but more importantly, we need to find a ways to make those groups less uh, easily convinced to just pick up a baton and go and beat random people that they don't know. And that's that's a difficult part, right? I'm not, I don't I don't I don't have the answer to that. But well, but that's yeah. what Hezbollah did, right? Yeah. If Hezbollah provided services and exactly. helped communities, and they did things. You know, it's really similar to the way that a lot of far right militias in the U.S. came. They came into rural areas where a lot of social services have been stripped from you know neoliberalization and they say like i'll drive you to the 
the hospital, you know, I'll help you fix your roof. You know, they do those sorts of things um, in a way that the, you know, the left who thinks of itself as such this communitarian force isn't there in a lot of those spaces. And I think also with the Hezbollah example, I agree, we didn't call it fascist, but it has some of those far right elements to it. It does also play out this dynamic that Matt Lyons talks about in the first chapter of a three-way fight, which is that, you know, there's the sort of like, quote unquote, the workers movement, but the mass movement of people trying to better themselves. Um, hopefully the left, that that's what the left becomes. So that's sort of that. And then there's a kind of ruling class who they're, you know, the left has to push from, to take from, um, to equal things out. And the ruling class wants to continue an exploitative relationship. And then you have this third group that isn't exactly one in the same with either one of those. In a way, Hezbollah um, does mm. some of this where it takes that revolutionary energy and then puts it into a more reactionary framework, right? So it's it does validate the revolutionary impulse, but it doesn't actually take it into like a better world necessarily. Um, it does offer certain privileges to certain groups of people. That's what the far right does is it buys out certain portions of the working class, privileged portions of the working class, according to whatever ideology is at play. So I think, yeah, I think you're right. We have to build resilient communities in the long term. And in a way, that's actually not anti-fascist work, right? That's the rest of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, anti-fascism benefits when you have strong mutual aid, when you have movements to um, seek your health care for people, uh, when you have labor unions that create stable jobs um, and stable income sources. And also in within those mechanisms, people have more control over their lives, right? You have like a union, someone has control over their workplace to a degree. A neighborhood council, same thing. So those things are always in the benefit. Those are the things that undermine what groups like Hezbollah have make a legitimate claim, you know? Um, it's sort of funny that the Hezbollah analogy is often used in labor union circles because what Hezbollah does is it doesn't just organize. It actually does a lot of things. You get mm-hmm. more and more involved with Hezbollah. Your community is more and more indebted to Hezbollah. And that's how a lot of these organizations should work. You know, mm-hmm. we should have, you know, a movement schools and provide healthcare things and do mutual aid networks. We should be doing those sorts of things. So we should learn about that uh, for our own purposes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, the next, it's kind of an awkward segue, but no, actually it's not, it's not. We've mentioned like building communities, uh, the importance of stuff like mutual aid, you know, making anti-fascism last, although mutual aid in and of itself is necessarily anti-fascist. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, it's obviously not fascist, but in the sense that it's like its own thing. Um, can you, do you have any concrete examples, maybe from like your own experience or from the book in which that has, you know, done or that has facilitated the work of anti-fascism? Yeah, I mean, I think in as much as the 2020 protests had an anti-fascist element, sometimes it was explicitly anti-fascist, sometimes it was more focused on larger BLM issues. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, mutual aid networks that formed around the pandemic, and there was a lot of them, this was a massive mutual aid surge, um, formed to get people, you know, food and stuff in certain neighborhoods, help get get access to like medications and healthcare things, help get people, you know, hand sanitizer, all the stuff that people needed. And also to support people who are out of work during that time. All of that stuff pivoted when the protests started. And now they became the same groups that were supporting those protests. Like they were, you know, had groups of uh, kind of collectives of people giving rides to and from or bailing people out of jail or getting um, street medic support or making sure people were fed at the protests. All the things that sustain a protest movement, you know, the social reproduction of a protest movement, the ability of it to continue itself was sustained by those mutual aid groups that weren't formed for the protest originally. And then what happened right after that, there was massive forest fires where I live in Oregon, right? About 12% of the state was on fire. All of a sudden, those groups, they pivoted back to more traditional mutual aid, started helping people in the fires, you know, helping getting people out of the fire zones and helping people who were, you know, stranded without homes, that kind of thing. So there's always that back and forth relationship. And anytime there's a mass anti-fascist action, it's going to depend on all the sorts of things that make an action successful. Obviously, lots of people and organizations that can help funnel people in there and collaborate. That's important. But also the resources that are going to be necessary to keep people there. And that's going to require mutual aid groups. No, no, for sure. Um, mentioning the fires, one of, one of the other reasons why we need to integrate um climate change into our like basically tackling climate change into our our um what well, our everything really our daily lives and our, our politics our really everything um among the many 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 reasons is that there is such a thing as ecofascism like this is a thing it is one of those terms that it has been so badly used often on purpose like misused uh, to the point that basically it's you know I, i've seen it used for example against actual environmental activists for example Always. Um, yeah, but the word ecofascist is a very specific thing, especially like in the in the you know in academic discourse and whatnot, and it is being studied as such. I would say that 
it's not 100% confirmed yet, but I think I will do a an episode on that with, with a scholar. Uh, name has not been confirmed. I think that's going to happen soon. Um, why uh, Talk to us a bit about that, or at least as much as you want on that. Uh, how, how does it differ maybe from other types of fascism? Like, is this just fascism and they also talk about the environment or is it something that is specific to it? I think it's both. So uh, one thing that I think is worthwhile to consider is that the environmental movement was never naturally a part of the left. It yeah. wasn't naturally a leftist movement. People may have agreed with it. I would agree with conservation and things like that, no matter what. But it didn't emerge necessarily from the left. And in a lot of ways, it actually emerged from the far right because it emerged from this belief in sort of natural law or the sort of Malthusian reality, quote unquote, reality of nature, the hierarchical understanding of nature, the eugenic potentials of nature. Those sorts of things were part of what motivated this early environmentalism. And you see with folks like, uh, Madison Grant, basically, who helped invent modern conservationism, also believed that we had to defend and conserve the white race. And that was a really mm -hmm. essential piece of it. And growing up into the you know mid-century, mid-20th century environmental movements, you have a lot of immigration restriction rhetoric, a lot of kind of population bomb uh, talk, mm -hmm. this idea of overpopulation that really centers itself on non-white folks and non-white immigrant groups on quote-unquote third world uh, in the language of the time, and that they were inherently environmentally destructive. We had to limit them and have a certain kind of uh, institutionalized cruelty. I mean, there's a kind of eugenics edge to this. There's a sort of, yeah. um, and there's some versions of this that are open in that politics. And this is why you saw, you know, a lot of the far right sort of networks like the Tantan Network, which eventually created, you know, the Federation for American Immigration Reform and Numbers USA and these other kind of far right anti-immigrant groups being involved groups like the Sierra Club. You know, early Earth First as a radical environmental movement also held a lot of really reactionary, queer phobic, anti-immigrant politics. And this was a really common piece of it. When we talk about eco-fascism, we're talking about part of that tradition continuing. We're talking about the energy, the sort of angst that underskirts a fascist movement being inspired by panic around the environment. Real panic. I have the same panic, right? <laughs> like that's a very mm -hmm. real panic. Um, and But it's motivating different kinds of solutions. It's motivating ones based on limiting resources to non-white folks or to having a sort of identitarian perspective on hoarding resources, closing borders, uh, preparing for a certain kind of environmental panic that's to come uh, with mass migration and other things and trying to defend white folks specifically for that. It's also about reifying a certain kind of like racial or identitarian like metaphysics um, kind of re-understand whiteness or white people through almost like mythology and anti-modernist mythology. The idea that we're reclaiming our kind of natural instincts, our natural society or organic social relationships. All these things play together into these interlocking ideas we call eco-fascism. I think what we're seeing most sort of most uh, prominent is going to be around border policy, particularly around migration off of the equator and other places that are basically creating climate refugees and how people respond to that, how people understand climate change in relation to population. Um, you know, do they understand, are they uh, seeing population as the primary uh, driver of climate change? Or that, is that where they want to focus energy? Those I think are eco-fascist ideas start to come from. Um, and it's what I find challenging about this is that the panic is real. There's a real reason for this. Um, things like population answers sound really easy and straightforward um, if you don't know what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and so they actually make that case quite a bit. And I think in a lot of cases, particularly in the global north, people will take their comfort and security even just for a few more years um, by accepting sort of like harsh immigration policy, yeah. you know, uh, detainment on the border, things like that. So I think that's where the growth of that movement comes from. You kind of mentioned the misuse of the term. The term ecofascism was previously mostly used to denigrate like radical environmentalists for totally erroneous reasons. Sometimes they accuse them of being that kind of romantic, anti-modern version of ecofascism, which is a usually unfair. Occasionally there are in the radical environmental movements, there are far right ideas that come in. Maybe they don't look like they're connected to you know, they're not in Proud Boys or something like that, but they they do filter in uh, from mm -hmm. time to time, um, particularly on the real fringe edges of radical environmentalism and ETP ecology. Um, but that is by far the minority. Mostly, we're talking about coming from the right. Yeah, one of the one of the many many reasons why this worries me, like ecofashion. I try to be more involved in like the climate space, 
uh, the eco space. Um, the thing that kind of scares me about ecofascism specifically is how certain aspects of it um, has sort of already become normalized. And by which I mean, even in the popular culture, and I've given this example a bunch of times just because it's a reference everyone understands or most people understand. But like, if you think of the Avengers, the character of Thanos, the, 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 like his concerns was overpopulation, right? He was scared of overpopulation or whatever. And his solution essentially was what I think it kind of, he would call it like an egalitarian genocide, essentially. Like, you know, we kill 50% of all living beings. I won't discriminate based on, uh, race or uh, class or whatever, but that's what is necessary. And at no point in the movie actually ha- is that underlying logic actually challenged. Like, you know, we have to kill the bad guy, but no one really openly disagrees with that specifically, that there is, quote unquote, a problem related to population. And that's sort of what worries me. I- I've I've been in different situations among folks who really, you know, you would describe them as broadly speaking, maybe liberal of progressives. Some of them would consider themselves on the left, Um, like more explicitly, I mean, like would use that label. But, uh, you know, if you kind of, for example, I I think, no, I don't think I've given this example. I was at this, um, it was like this environmental class. It doesn't really matter in Beirut, uh, 2019, uh, summer of 2019. And at some point, we started talking about, I don't remember what the topic was, but someone in the class randomly brought up the fact that, well, shouldn't we also talk about overpopulation in Africa? You know, the, this this immediately just came up like that. And the thing is that on the spot, it's almost like, if you don't know what, what is happening, it's almost like a disarming thing. Because mm-hmm. they're not saying something on an, in and of itself, where if you don't know anything, it may not sound like a bad thing. If you don't know what, what what's actually happening. Yeah. Now, obviously, I did. So I pushed back and, and whatnot. But the problem is that this rhetoric isn't super far away from, I don't know, Jane Goodall has said stuff like that, you know, uh, the whole yeah. overpopulation thing has happened. Like it, it's something that is, if not explicitly said in those terms, I feel like it's in the back of a lot of people's minds. And that, that's what sort of worries me, because it's not only are the would the consequences be pretty bad and they are already pretty bad, but it's also just factually wrong. And the fact that it is factually wrong doesn't stop it, obviously, as we know with these things, because at, at some level it's emotional, like, you know, anxiety is like, oh, too many people, you know, I, I can't breathe or, or yeah. whatever it is. Like even on a mental level, it can feel that way, especially for folks who maybe live in cities or, or whatever, which is obviously most of humans at this point. So anyway, that's like on, on that topic. As I said, I do want to do more explicit stuff on it and I'll try and get to it eventually. But, you know, I mean, yeah, please. I think um, what is important here is to acknowledge that that's not where climate change comes from. That it comes from the global north and huge resources that are used by a lot smaller populations of people. Um, so if we're talking about population, quote unquote, as the cause, we're not actually talking about the places that people usually assume there's population issues. Like, like you said, people accuse that there are being like overpopulation in Africa. We're actually talking about like North America, United States, where smaller numbers of people are just just pumping carbon into the atmosphere. Those are where those issues are. And I think it's, you know, if people were really so concerned about population, the things that all populations stabilize over time and the things that stabilize them are things like women's education, yeah. you know, like those are actually the things um, improving people's lives. So I think like that's the process people should be really thinking about and thinking about the reality of climate change, which is about carbon usage, exploitative corporations, things like that. And I, I think you're right that people take things, the population has this emotion of quality for it like oh they're crowding me that kind of thing um we need to kind of switch that and say like look where is this consumption actually happening and what actually does something about it and start having research-driven solutions to that and also showing people where their ideas lead okay if you're talking if you're singling out africa and saying they're all overpopulated what do you think the logical conclusion of that idea Mm -hmm. is you know like i think pushing through on that kind of stuff Yeah, yeah no no for sure for sure and even like within that entire discourse, uh, there is generally, honestly, like not that much awareness. And I'm talking specifically in Europe because I'm based here. But honestly, I, I saw this in Lebanon as well, which, you know, on the global scale, like it's le- the level of pollution from Lebanon is almost negligible just because it's so tiny. That discourse, that kind of belief is, is almost like, as I said, it's almost instinctual. It's not really instinctual, but it almost feels that way. Like it comes from a different doesn't like people don't really say these things out loud usually but they definitely think them and it worries me that they think them because i think it it ends up becoming also like if you're in a country like switzerland or i don't know some of the neighboring countries there's almost this sense i i can't quite describe it i definitely can't prove it but i sort of feel it 
that folks sort of feel like we're all sort of guilty somehow, but like no one is guiltier than someone else. And because of that, I don't want to be the person that stands out. I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to kind of feel that way. When what's kind of important to always to emphasize more and more, and, you know, I think some, I think this is becoming more common, but I think it should be even more common, even faster, is this understanding, even within the global north, even within Europe, even within the people who, uh, for example, I don't know, fly a lot or whatever, even within those folks, you have a percentage that do it on such a disproportionate level that even tackling just those folks is already pretty significant. I'm not saying it's going to solve everything, but it's one of those things that, like the the statistics, I don't have them in mind, but like folks can check out the episode I did with the Stay Grounded Network on aviation or just check out their website. The statistics are, are mind boggling. Like it's on a different... It's not what one thinks, is what I would say. Like I've been involved in the eco world for quite some time, and I was genuinely surprised by some of the some of the figures. Like how, like especially when it comes to air travel, for example, like overwhelmingly, just like a tiny percentage of humans even use those on a regular level. Level based, you know, stuff like that. So, oh yeah, that, that's I, I, the stuff think, that I would kind of bring up more often. I think it does work to some extent. I think it's a sense of helplessness too. This yeah. cascading destruction of the world. Um, and population is a very visible thing um, and they can kind of wrap their heads around it. Giving people real tools say, okay, we can actually do something about this. this is how it would work. I think that really undermines that. I think talking, you know, the thing about population is that popul- the population of the world does stabilize with improved conditions. It actually kind of equalizes out. And I don't think people actually realize that there's this kind of like dystopian understanding of all of the future that people tend to have of like somehow, you know, we're going to have a hundred billion people on the planet. I mean, like, it's just simply not how it works. So, I think understanding people like, hey, you know, what we should be focusing on is one, reducing carbon emissions in general, stabilizing those, particularly in the nations that have 95% of it, and then also improving people's lots so that people have control over their communities, that they're building the families they want, the communities they want, that kind of thing, because that actually does equal things out and stabilize all of ecology in the end. Yeah, that's that's really crucial. I guess it kind of, the, the, penultimate question was about actually imaginaries and the whole the this is definitely one of the underlying themes of this podcast like the the apocalyptic uh futurisms i guess we might call them uh one of the reasons why i'm so into solar punk and that that sort of thing is to just make it easier for folks to have these alternatives kind of ready like just easy to kind of use because we are saturated completely saturated with uh, with apocalyptic um scenarios uh, some of them, as I said, are sourced in a real anxiety, and some of that anxiety is based on facts. But obviously, when we're talking about, I don't know, Blade Runner or like zombie apocalypses or whatnot, those are not. Those are kind of man- manifestation of maybe some anxiety. But then when it becomes visual and when it becomes something we can recognize as, well, it's, it doesn't feel that unlikely. You know, that that's kind of the power of cyberpunk, obviously, is that it's an, an aspect of cyberpunk, those apocalyptic futures those kind of dystopian post-apocalyptic futures in some cases, they they felt like at least like some of them, like it's not fantasy, right? It's not like Lord of the Rings. Like some of it is based in reality or like this feels realistic, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 obviously the, 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 the motivation that I have when it comes to Solarpunk is to challenge that, challenge that imaginary because it does, one of the things I kind of learned and I think the hard way is that belief matters a lot and imagination matters a lot. Again, it's not the only thing, structural issues, all of that stuff that we need to talk about it as well. As well, But one of the reasons that, one of the things that weakens us, I think, as individuals and as communities, as groups, as whatnot, and other folks, uh, to, to actually tackle this is that often we don't know what we're fighting for, right? Like we know we're fighting against something. It's, it's, it's the, and often it's like an emergent emergency things like, you know, uh, there's a fascist candidate or, you know, that's, there's something concrete to fight against. And that's very important. But part of the reason why they sort of have this uh, facility, not always, and I'm kind of simplifying a bit just for the purpose of the conversation is that they tend to have this easy story, right? Like they have, they have an easy narrative. It appeals to some folks, not to most folks, but to enough folks that it can cause damage. And one thing that kind of became frustrating and then I replaced that frustration with something that I feel is more actionable and something I can actually do is that often you have this cynicism, right? The learned helplessness. And you have in in kind of climate discourse, you have something, obviously we know about hard climate denial, people who just don't believe it exists. Right. But you have soft climate denialism, which is a form of climate denialism. It's like, well, yes, it does exist. Yes, humans do it. But like, what can you do about it? Or 
you know, we're already doing a lot. Like, that's already enough. We'll just buy electric cars or, you know, whatever, whatever the discourse may be. It's like we're already on, we're already kind of going there. We're already like in a, in a, in a good direction. And obviously scientists say, no, we're not. But, you know, the, the belief is a very strong and a powerful belief. And ultimately, I think part of it is, is rooted in fear and denial and in, in helplessness and cynicism often, you know, other, other isms. But one of the reasons that I think we need to have these positive futurisms isn't just like, you know, feel good, whatnot. Although I, th- I think feel good stuff have been kind of demonized un- un- unfairly, but that's a different conversation. Right. But like, it's because it actually works. Like people, when actually, when folks actually believe that like, oh, well, I can, I can participate in this community garden and this will allow me to feel more grounded in where I am and whatever it is. It's not like it's going to solve everything. But it's like something that's concrete that people can do. And people, usually we need things to do. Like when it's just in your mind and you have this eco-anxiety or eco-grief or whatnot, and you're just mulling over it and you feel kind of helpless, you end up kind of thinking a lot like the kind of extreme prepper folks. Like I just need to, uh, you know, have a certain amount of cans. I need to save myself. I need to save my family or whatnot. And you end up kind of, you know, forgetting that or not knowing maybe that actually the best way type of resilience is community resilience and you know other stuff so that, that's sort of where I'm, co- I'm coming at it and obviously part of the concern that i have or part of the let 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 me see if i can explain myself well but the reason why i also think about like anti-fascism and also with the reason the reason why i sometimes focus a bit too much maybe or at least too much of my time on authoritarianism on the left for example which which is a thing that exists including anti-Semitism on the left or left anti-Semitism and, you know, other, other, other phenomena. Uh, conspiracy thinking, I think, is still uh, more common than it should on the left. Um, and here I'm being kind of broad. Is that it harms this um, community building. It harms the potential for organization. It harms the... It, it, it makes it less safe to think about things that are already very difficult to tackle. I think left authoritarianism, I don't find it to be as big of a problem, obviously, as the far right, and obviously not as big as a problem as fascism. I don't think it's, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it does that much damage. And I think it is largely, disproportionately, at the very least, an online phenomenon, but it does exist. And it's and it's something that I have seen it uh, cause direct harm with folks who, for example, Syrians in London who are ne- who like our ex- uh, exilees there who have been exiled, um, who assume because they are themselves liberals or progressives or lefties, uh, assume that you know a a anti-war group will be sympathetic to to their experience mm-hmm. because they yeah. just survived the war. And obviously, I'm referring to the Stop the War movement in in the UK, and they actually found. Out, they learned the hard way that that wasn't the case, that actually those groups, the quote-unquote anti-imperialists, as they call themselves, were actually pretty downright whitewashing, silencing them, you know, expressing pretty bogus and idiotic conspiracy theories about Russia and, and Syria and, and what have mm-hmm. you. That phenomenon of, for, for lack of a better term, because part of it is authoritarianism and part of it is conspiracy thinking and the, the two kind of play with one another, like they definitely intersect what do you see that role within specifically within anti-fascism as a as a discourse as an ideology as as a practice even uh is it sometimes like we kind of need to ignore them or we we may have like i know that in some cases in the us i know that like uh folks have had to work with tankies because that's just how things were you kind of had to work with what you had or what you have in front of you um how do you think about that i'll just shut up now yeah, well, really, really quick on the solar punk punk point. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm co-editing a solar punk um, anthology right now with uh, Justine from Solar Punk Magazine, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's really important to um, give people some active imagine, imagination to what the future could be. I think there is a certain kind of vulgar Marxism that took over that refused to see things as other than material conditions that like backed away from prefiguration entirely, mm-hmm. which I think has been sort of detrimental to that partially because um the movements we build now are the kernels of a new future we have to start doing that work now we don't just wait until some kind of distant revolution takes place in which we can now build our perfect society we actually do it now that's the process of communization actually is and so i think that's important to imagine right off the bat because that will be what we end up with i think on the the tanky question i i you know i think 
there are lots of socialists I disagree with that I think are great allies and comrades in those sorts of things. You know, for example, you used to work with the ISO, the International Socialist Organization, which is similar to like the SWP in Britain and, and other movements, Trotskyist groups, um, which I, you know, uh, find their politics disagreeable in a lot of ways, but the people are, we're always uh, great. And um, there was no reason not to versus some really bad faith Stalinist and Maoist groups and, and, people uh, that justify um genocide <laughs> that or deny genocide i mean i don't think that those groups have really much that kind of scene has much to offer anyone you know like there are groups on here that like that, like for example there's a facebook group right now called uh, the khmer rouge did nothing wrong um i i'm not really interested in dealing with that um and a lot of ways actually that a lot of that kind of authoritarian social stuff ends up defending a sort of national socialist politic because yeah. of the nationalism underlying a lot of these i mean the khmer rouge um could very easily be under that banner of fascism we talked about earlier right like very yeah. easily could yeah, be yeah. like this racialized um uh, socialist attack on certain minority groups and for a centralized kind of identity so i think that needs to be a hard line anti-fascism is our critique on that anti-fascism critiques the left but when the left appropriates ideas that belong on the far right that sorts of imports those where they shouldn't belong that you oftentimes see a kind of trailing anti-imperialist movements right like the anti-fascists can take the unpopular opinion so when anti-semitic conspiracy theories show up or pro-assad stuff shows up or pro-putin stuff um i think or, or russia defending stuff under the under the banner of multipolarity i think anti-fascists actually understand that process of sort of far right slippage better than the rest of the left. So I think that's the intervention that they can play. Um, interviewing Rose City Antifa, um, they're not really present in this book. They're present in my first book and they will be, I, I you know, I'm slowly working on a book on mass anti-fascism and they're interviewed a lot in there. And they probably talk, part of what they talk about is that a lot of the conflicts they actually had were with other people on the left. So when they were you know, pushing out like a conspiracy theory, 9-11 truther guy, it was anti-war people that had a problem. When they were pushing out some um, sort of um, national anarchist types, it was bioregionalist environmentalists that had the issue with them. Um, this happens all the time, um, you know, and this, this happens with like, for example, David Rovick's now, um, you know, where like people, it has to be anti-fascists that raise the issue of saying, hey, this guy's had some problems. There's some problematic ideas and behaviors happening here. Um, and it's people on the left that they're having to be in kind of conflict with. This happens all the time. So I think anti-fascists play that role. They're able to see it when it uh, comes into the left. They're able to locate red-brown alliances, even when it's just a kind of glimmer of it. And they're also able to kind of call out bad ideas, just like, hey, this leads somewhere bad. I think anti-fascists, for example, are, are poised to look at certain kind of um, population ideas in the environmental movement and say, like, hey, that's actually bringing in like an analysis we should be standing against and be able to do that. So I think that's really clear there. And I think when it comes to the, and I think when you talk about the authoritarian leftists, I think you're talking about this really toxic online mess. It's not necessarily the same as like the ISO or something like that. It's more like this really kind of gross core of Stalinist groups and Maoist groups. Um, they do not want a liberated world. I don't see them as allies in anything because they do not want a liberated world. We don't have enough in common. So I think that, you know, if a group's out there saying, okay, I want to make North Korea go global, I don't. So I don't <laughs> want to be a part of that. And I don't think, and I think um, what they're going to end up doing is justifying a lot of politics that are, we actually confront when it's under the banner of fascism and that we don't want to uh, be a part of. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks. That that's. I think that's a perfect answer. Um, okay, so... I think we're going to slowly wrap up. Um, do, is there anything that you wanted us to get into more that we didn't have much time? If you want to talk more about the book, you know, what have you. And then the last thing that we, I always do on this podcast is I ask folks to recommend three books on, you know, I don't know, books that they have inspired them or, or whatever. So anything you want to share before that? I think just to keep in mind how diverse the book actually is. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. Uh, in there, there's histories in there. There's sort of things that are almost like instructions. There's stories, um, like totally erased histories. Um, there's a really intentional work to start including things in the story of anti-fascism that has not been in there. So it's really expansive in that way. And there should be something for everyone. On the books that I recommend, that's a good question. I just put together like an anti-fascist reading list. Um, I think... 
I think, okay, so I'll keep it on the kind of the fascism road. I think the first one is a book that really, I think, is sort of foundational for understanding white nationalism, which is uh, Leonard Zeskin's Blood and Politics. Um, Zeskin was a, a member of Sojourner Truth a long time ago um, and put together what is sort of the foundational book on the American far right, which I think is just absolutely essential reading. Um Another book is Bring the War Home by Kathleen Ballou, um, which is another book about insurrectionary um, white supremacy that I think is really important for understanding accelerationism. And I think um, Zoe Sesmuzi and uh, William C. Anderson's book, um, As Black as Resistance, I put on every list because it's just so brilliant. I cite it in everything I do. I think it's um, just foundational for understanding of that sort of resistance politics. Yeah, I actually haven't read that last one yet. I read William's uh, last book, Nation on the Map, because I had him Which on. Which is also really fabulous. It's it an amazing book as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, um, Shane, thanks a lot for your time. This was fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayu. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.